0: Hey, you're watching your television when your regular programming is interrupted by late breaking news. A war correspondent on a battlefield is reporting on a crisis. This is what happens in tonight's text, in Isaiah chapter 36 through 39. In chapter 36, the prophet Isaiah becomes a reporter. He interrupts his prophecy with news from the war zone. The mighty Assyrian army has been slaughtered. Isaiah covers one of the most dramatic battles in Old Testament history. What happened to the Assyrian troops outside of Jerusalem was so significant that God saw fit to record it in the scripture three times, no less in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20, and here in Isaiah chapters 36 to 39. Chapter 36 begins, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Assyria was the heavyweight champ. This army appeared invincible. They had knocked out armies all over the world. They had a string of impressive victories. And the Assyrian king at the head of it all, was a man named Sennacherib. The Assyrian army had rolled over the outposts north of Jerusalem, the border towns that had served as the city's first line of defense. The troops had breezed through the barricades, and now they were camped just outside the city walls north of Jerusalem. Imagine living in the city at the time, peering over the stones at 200,000 soldiers covering the landscape like ants on buttered bread soldiers armed to the teeth these men are dangerous they're in attack mode they want to destroy your family fear reigns among the citizens of Jerusalem we're told then the king of Assyria sent the rabshaka with a great army from Lachish to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem now Lachish was field held court field headquarters for the Assyrians. Lachish was southwest of Jerusalem, and since the invaders swarmed in from the north, its position indicates that the city is surrounded. The Rabshaka was the Assyrian was an Assyrian diplomat. He was the official cupbearer of the king. This was the position that Nehemiah would later occupy among the Persians. Think of the Rabshakeh as the head of the secret service. He was in charge of the king's personal security. And here he's dispatched with a message to Jewish king Hezekiah. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Now, the highway to the fuller's field was a strategic position. In fact, everyone at the time knew of its significance. Thirty-three years earlier, we read about it in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah had stood at this very spot to warn Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, about putting his trust in the Assyrians. Isaiah had encouraged Ahaz to trust the Lord, not in the hand of men, not in this foreign army. Ahaz, though, had failed to heed God's warnings, and now his son is facing the consequences. Assyria has turned against them, and now Assyria is the main threat. You know, it's an irony of life that when you fail to listen to God, you find yourself running into the same places and encountering the same situations that you thought that you would never face again. Sin takes you in circles. Disobedience appears to be a shortcut, even a bypass that will skirt difficulties. But in the end, it is the long way around. And here the people are right back where they started. Verse 4, Then the rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Realize that an Assyrian trademark was its propaganda machine. Messengers played on the people's fears. The Assyrians were masters of intimidation. Cities often surrendered without a fight. Reminds me of Satan. In John chapter 8, Jesus calls him the father of lies. You see, the devil too likes to intimidate. He tries to frighten us and bully us and deceive us. This is why we need to know who we are and what we have in Christ. Not back down. We need to rise up in faith, not cower away in fear. James 4 verse 7 promises us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, the Rabshakeh, he had done his homework. He reasons with the Jews as follows. Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce him. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Assyrian intelligence knew that Hezekiah had just signed a protection treaty with the Egyptians. But the Rabshakeh assures Hezekiah that Egypt will be no help. You see, at the time, Egypt was in a state of decline. Ethiopia had become the dominant African nation. Egypt was a broken reed, as he says here. Assyria is now threatening Hezekiah's capital, and his ally, Egypt, is nowhere to be found. Well, the Rabshakeh continues, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God... Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah had taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? Now here's a foreigner addressing internal Jewish affairs. And he's getting it all wrong. The Rabshakeh mentions the high places that Hezekiah had eradicated. He mistakes them as altars to Yahweh. In essence, he's saying... You trust your God, but you've torn down His places of worship. Why would He help you now? You see, the truth of the matter is that God despised these high places. God's law required that all sacrifices were to be offered at the temple, on the altar in the outer court, the brazen altar of the temple. These high places, these scattered various altars, these promoted an aberrant, do-it-yourself kind of religion. God had outlawed these altars, and Hezekiah was simply being obedient to exactly what God had called him to do in demolishing them. Here the Assyrian Rabshaka is doing what Isaiah warned Judah in chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, think about this. This was an idolatrous Assyrian giving the Hebrews biblical advice. How silly. He didn't know the difference between right and wrong or light and darkness. Verse 8, Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, and he mockingly adds, if you are able on your part to put riders on them. He mocks the Jews. Surrender. Surrender. And we'll give you 2,000 horses if you even have 2,000 able riders. Judah certainly didn't have much of a cavalry. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against the land to destroy it? The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. And here the Rabshakeh claims to have the one true God's own blessing. He says Yahweh will fight for Assyria. This is preposterous. And yet Satan is good at putting words in God's mouth, is he not? You recall in the Garden of Eden, Satan asked Adam and Eve, Has God indeed said? And then he went on to twist God's words out of context. Hey, when Satan quotes Scripture, when he claims to speak for God, count on him to misquote the passage. He is not a reliable source. Well, then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, that is the Jewish delegation that had went out to meet the Assyrian, said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Now, the citizens of Jerusalem, they had come out to to witness this scene. They were all sitting up on the wall, overhearing the conversation. And the Assyrians' rhetoric was stirring up fear. Apparently, this Rabshakeh was bilingual. He could speak in his own native tongue, Aramaic, but instead he spoke in Hebrew, in the language of the citizens of Jerusalem. See, he was verbalizing these things, knowing that the citizens would overhear him. He was attempting to frighten the Jews. But the Shaka said, Has my master sent me to your master, and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? He says, It's the citizens of Jerusalem that will suffer from the siege. They have just as much right to hear the threat as the kings and the officers. Here the Shaka mentions the ultimate outcome and consequences of siege warfare. Remember we talked about this last week. The invading army would surround the city. It would cut off the supply lines. It would starve out the city. The inhabitants would become so desperate for food and water that they would eat their own waste and drank their own urine. And at the moment, the Assyrian army had Jerusalem under such a siege. And He's threatening them. He's saying it loud enough for the citizens to hear that this is going to be the ultimate fate of the city of Jerusalem unless they give in and surrender. Verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. He's being defiant. He's he doesn't care about what the people have said. He's not going to limit himself you know, to Aramaic. He's going to speak Hebrew. And he shouts out, hear the, great, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. The bully is shouting so loud now that all Jerusalem can hear his threats. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's trying to undermine Hezekiah among his own people. He's telling the subjects of Jerusalem that their king can't be trusted. He's not acting wisely. Hezekiah's obstinance is going to cause them great suffering. He's a master intimidator. He says, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a presence. And come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Now he's laying the propaganda on thick." History tells us that the Assyrians had no intention whatsoever of taking the Jews away to a wonderland of bread and vineyards. Actually, Assyria was infamous for its barbaric and inhumane treatment of its captive foes. I mean, these Assyrians, I mean, these were the people that that liked to pluck out the eyes of their conquered kings. They would rip out tongues They would skin their victims like you would clean a fish. In fact, the Assyrian trademark, their calling card, if you will, was to pile up human skulls outside the gate of their conquered city. It would intimidate the next city that they intended to to fight. For the Assyrian Rabshakeh to promise the Jews grain and new wine? (laughs) Oh my, that was a lie straight from hell. And understand, this is Satan's one advantage in spiritual warfare. For unlike God, he doesn't tell the truth. He will promise you anything with no intention of delivering on his promise. He's not bound to the truth. He also likes to intimidate with lies. Satan's intention, remember, is to steal, kill, and to destroy. Well, the Assyrian continues his rant in verse 18. He says, Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zephavraim? I mean, these were the cities of Syria. You remember the Syrians, they fell to Assyria ten years earlier in 732 B.C. The Shaka is pointing out that their gods were of no help to them. Their gods didn't protect those cities. What makes the Jews think that their God will be any more successful in defending them? You see, when ancient armies went out to battle, they believed it was a contest between gods. It was sort of a my God against your God proposition. May the best God win sort of situation. Here, the Assyrian diplomat, he lists all of the gods that had fallen to Assyria on their current campaign. What makes the Jews believe that Yahweh will be any different? And this is the argument that Satan uses on many folks today. Oh, you've tried religion. I mean, nothing really worked before. Why do you think Jesus is any different? You see, Satan doesn't want you to consider that perhaps you haven't tried the right religion are giving your life to the right God. Not all gods are the same. There are false gods. Yes, Assyria might have defeated all of the gods of all of the nations that they had conquered to this point, but perhaps they have yet to meet the one true God, the God who is really God. Well, the Rabshakeh, he gets personal in verse 19. He hits close to home. He says, indeed... Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Now, you remember, Samaria was the capital of the northern Israeli kingdom, the Hebrew nation. Samaria had fallen two decades earlier in 722 B.C. Judah's sister had been defeated. Samaria supposedly worshipped the same God, as did Judah. Why will Jerusalem's plight then be any different from hers? Of course... We know that Samaria's rebellion was the result of, or was the cause of her defeat. She had rebelled against God. She had succumbed to idolatry. Rather than worship the one true God, she was worshiping the idols. And God used the Assyrians to judge his disobedient people. The Assyrian's mouth concludes his blasphemous argument. He says, Who among all the gods of these lands? have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord, that is Yahweh, should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. And I would imagine if you were in Jerusalem, under siege, facing those 200,000 bloodthirsty troops just outside the walls, just a stone's throw away, this line of reasoning might have grabbed your attention. And remember, he was loud enough for all the wall-sitters, for all Jerusalem to hear, And yet the one person that he didn't count on listening to his blasphemy was the king of heaven. And the one true God is about to show the Assyrian who's boss. Verse 21. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. As much as they wanted to defend their God, the delegation of Jews, they refused to respond to his blasphemies. And that's when Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rubshaka. Chapter 37. So it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He repented. He humbled himself. And then he went into the temple to seek the king of kings. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And this is revealing. Judah's head of state and his closest advisors are facing a crisis of life and death. But rather than call for his generals, rather than call for his senior officials or his cabinet members, he sends for the godliest man that he knows. He calls for Isaiah. He summons a man that he knows can get in touch with God, who knows God's will, who is familiar with God's word. And they said to Isaiah, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. The children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. This was a familiar proverb. In essence, there are children to be born, but there's not enough strength to deliver them. A great opportunity is before us but we don't have the strength to take advantage. That's what he's saying. God has opened us a door, but we're too weak to walk through it. He says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshaka, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah had confidence in his friend's relationship with God. If anyone could get through, if anyone could connect with God, it was Isaiah. And so he calls on Isaiah for help. Hey, do people call on you when they need spiritual help? When your friends want to get through to God, do they call on you and ask for your prayers? Let's hope so. And so the servants of King Hezekiah, they came to Isaiah. Apparently, Isaiah had already been talking to God about the situation. For we learn, and Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And we'll read later that that's exactly what happens. Verse 8. Then the Rabshaka returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. For he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tahaka, king of Ethiopia. He has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Now, Sennacherib, he had heard rumors of a possible conflict brewing with the Ethiopians in North Africa. And he doesn't want to fight a war on two fronts. He doesn't want to fight in North Africa and at the same time fight in Judah. And so he tries to intimidate Hezekiah again into surrender. This time, rather than send the Rabshakeh, he sends him a letter, verse 10. Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered? Now this time it's more direct. There's no fictitious sugar-coated promises of grain and wine, bread and vineyards. No, Sennacherib gets very direct. He's not telling the people not to trust in Hezekiah. He's warning their king not to trust in God. He's saying, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you. This man thinks he's greater than God. He says, have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and uh, Resef and the people of Eden who were in Telazar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Zephiraim, Hena and Iva? Evidently, their gods didn't defend them. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I love this reaction. Hezekiah came before the Lord He opened up the letter. In other words, he unrolled the scroll. And then he just spread it out before the Lord. And he says, okay, Lord, here it is. Now he's insulting you. Now he's brought you into the fight. Hezekiah wanted God to see that Sennacherib had insulted him personally. That he had questioned God's faithfulness. So had now made this an issue between him and God, not just him and Hezekiah. And so he spreads it out before the Lord. Hey, when you're faced with a major decision or when you're threatened by a crisis, here's a great way to respond. Like Hezekiah, just get it off your chest. Just pour it all out. Just spill the beans. Just get out a pen and a piece of paper and write it all down and then just spread out your problem before the Lord let the Lord see it turn it over to him reminds me of the pastor who received a threatening letter it was only one word on the letter someone had written the, the word fool sent it to the pastor that Sunday he brought the letter to church he told the congregation that he had received an unusual letter he said never before have I opened a letter where the writer signed his name but forgot to write anything else. Well, Hezekiah also brings his threatening letter to the temple, and he just spreads it out before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And I love this prayer. I like to call it a back-against-the-wall prayer. See, there are times in everyone's life when the odds are against us. When our back is against the wall and there's no way out. When that happens, here's what you can pray. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Boy, don't you like that? Certainly, Hezekiah, he has a big problem, but he reminds himself that he's got an even bigger God. He says of His God, You have made heaven and earth. Our God is creator of the universe. He's sovereign over sea and land and sky. He's king over all the nations of the world. No king is greater. No problem is greater. Oftentimes, our problem clouds our perspective. This is why once we spread it out, we need to immediately Shift our focus off our problem and onto our great God. You see, the only time a fly is bigger than a tree is when it's sitting on the end of my nose. But when you focus on God's greatness, the fly suddenly seems smaller, doesn't it? We need to get our eyes off our problem and onto our God. And then Hezekiah prays, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. And they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed him. See, so he's setting the record straight here. So what if they've knocked off a few wooden trinkets and stone statues? Let's say, Let's see how they do up against the real God. Hezekiah sees the situation from God's perspective. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You are the Lord, You alone. He wants God to work not just to save His own skin, but so that God Himself will be glorified. So that all the nations will know who the true God is. The God of Jerusalem. The God of Judah. Hey, remember this prayer when your back's against the wall. It's a great prayer to pray. The five steps to take to pray a back against the wall prayer. Here they are. Take it to God. Spread it out before the Lord. Focus on God and His greatness. See the situation from His perspective. And then make your request with God's glory in mind. Verse 21 is God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. It comes through Isaiah. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn, The daughter of Jerusalem is shaking her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. You have angered the one true God, buddy. You're in trouble. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Notice Isaiah's rendition of Assyria's boast. Five times Sennacherib had said, I have. Boy, a prideful king has taken credit for his victories, for his advances. And now God rebukes him. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Though King Sennacherib and the Assyrians didn't realize it, though they might have never admitted it, Yahweh, the God of Judah, the one true God, was the secret of Assyria's successes. For centuries, the Hebrew prophets had predicted that God would use Assyria as an instrument of His judgment. God was responsible for Assyria's rise to power. Not Sennacherib. Not any of her former kings. And he concludes here in verse 27. Therefore, in other words, because of God's intervention, their inhabitants, all the cities that Assyria had conquered, had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before its grown. In other words, the God of Judah had rendered these kingdoms weak, defenseless. The God of Judah was the architect of a serious success. And I love God's ominous words to Sennacherib in verse 28 but I know your dwelling place. You're going out, and you're coming in. In other words, God is saying to King Sennacherib, buddy, I know where you live. For 35 years, my dad worked for the phone company. So when my mom started getting obscene phone calls, he traced the call. Dad got the name and the address of the teenager who was making the obscene phone calls. In fact, he drove over to the kid's house. He noticed the car that he drove. He got a good look at the culprit. That's when my dad called the boy. He he told him his address. He told him the make, model, and color of the car that he drove. He even gave him a description of what the boy had been wearing that day. And then my dad reminded him that he didn't know what my dad looked like. But he could rest assured that if my mom ever got another obscene phone call, my dad would strike when it was least expected. Dad said the boy never made another obscene phone call. It is frightening to hear someone who has the advantage, who has the drop, tell you, I know where you live. Especially when that person is God verse 28 but I know your dwelling place you're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. God is going to lead this great world empire around like a dog on a leash. He's going to lead Assyria to, into a trap. Where Assyria is going to meet its demise. You know, Ezekiel 38 says that he'll do the same to the Russian army of the last days. That God will set a hook in her draw. And then coax her into Israel. Where he'll destroy her armies. Verse 30. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same? Also in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. In other words, this siege is going to be over soon. It's going to be back to business as usual in Jerusalem. God is about to deal a surprising blow to the Assyrians on their doorstep. And the remnant who have escaped to the house of Judah shall again take root downward. And bear fruit upward. I like that. Isn't that God's will for you and me? That we take root downward. That we sink our roots deep into God. That we develop a first-hand knowledge of God. That we let Him build character in our lives and fortify our faith. Let's sink deep into God. But then, let's bear fruit upwards. Let's make a spiritual impact. Let's make a difference in the lives of other people. He says, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will see to it that His people and His city are delivered. Then verse 33, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it, The Syrians won't have time to dig in and wreak havoc. He says, by the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God will act. He will save Jerusalem. And then suddenly the hammer falls in verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. A single combat angel sent by God annihilated the army of the Assyrians A hundred and eighty-five thousand troops were dead in the valleys surrounding Jerusalem by morning light. A hundred and eighty-five thousand. Did you know that's the population of Columbus, Georgia? hundred and eighty-five thousand is the population of Little Rock, Arkansas. Apparently it was bedtime that proved dead time. He came in the middle of the night. And who was this special ops angel? Who was this one angel wrecking crew? Who is God's mighty ranger angel? I'll tell you who he was. It was our Lord Jesus. You remember earlier in Isaiah 7 through 10, victory was predicted by Isaiah. Chapter 7 tells us that a virgin will bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, and that Emmanuel will win this victory. Isaiah 8 credits Emmanuel with stopping the invaders. He will break them in pieces, Isaiah says. and Isaiah 9, the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is he talking about but Jesus? Emmanuel will reign forever and occupy the throne of David. Add it all up. And Emmanuel, this avenging angel was none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Here's the part of the Christmas story that's seldom mentioned. Imagine Joseph, fluent in the Old Testament, when the angel comes to him and tells him that Mary's baby will be called Emmanuel. Joseph knew Isaiah. He knew the story of Emmanuel, the Assyrian avenger. What did he think? When the angel told him that Mary's baby was this very same Emmanuel. That this baby was no newcomer. That he had been here before. In fact, Mary's baby had already been to battle. It was baffling to comprehend. But the babe Mary laid in the manger hay had already made hay outside of Jerusalem. Seven centuries earlier, the babe of Bethlehem had slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian troops just up the road, just outside the Jerusalem walls. He had come brandishing a sword. Jesus had flashed his medal, and by the time it was returned to its scabbard, it dripped with rebel blood. This baby's first cry had been a battle cry. And this should cause you and me to appreciate the humility of Jesus all the more. That God became a man. That the warrior had become a baby. That this one who had proved so invincible became vulnerable in order to show us that he cared and that he wanted to put himself in our shoes. Jesus left his command post for a cradle For salvation to occur, the slayer became the slaughtered. One other note, not only does the Bible record this slaughter, the event also occurs in secular history. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus mentions Assyria's defeat. He says a plague of mice invaded the camp. Verse 37 tells us, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adrammelech and Sherazir struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and then Ashardan, his son, reigned in his place. Secular historians tell us that Sennacherib was worshipping his god when his sons pushed the idol over And it knocked him out. Then they went in and carved him up. It was a fulfillment of chapter 37, verse 7 that we read earlier. He returned to his land and he fell by the sword. Well, chapter 38 tells us In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. Now, this is not good news. Isaiah tells the king to get his house in order. Do you have a will, Hezekiah? It's time to buy a new suit, something you want to be buried in. Make sure you purchase that grave plot. Set your house in order. You're going to die. Well, then Hezekiah, he turned his face toward the wall And he prayed to the Lord. The idea is that he turned away from those that were attending to his needs and he prayed privately. He prayed toward the wall. And he said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Obviously, he wasn't ready to die. And the word of the Lord came to Hezekiah saying, came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Because Hezekiah had prayed, God extended the king's life an additional 15 years. Which brings up an interesting question. Is it possible for us to change God's mind? And I believe the answer to that question is a definitive yes and no. (laughs) Some of God's plans are unalterable. They're set in stone. But God has other plans that are subject to our input. And as a father, this is how I roll. If you're a dad, this is probably how you roll. At times, you make decisions that aren't going to change no matter how much pleading the kids do. Your decision is a done deal. Whereas there are other decisions where you're open and you're flexible. In fact, you're looking for input. And you never know which decision is which, until you ask and this is why god encourages us to pray for we never know oh sometimes god's will is written in cement more often than not god is looking for our input like any father god wants us to feel a part of his family and so he gives us a say in certain decisions this is why we're told in ephesians 6 verse 18 to be praying always Now, having said that, here's another question. Is it wise for us to change God's mind once He's spoken? And here is where Hezekiah might tell us, no, it's not wise. For in his bonus years, two events occur that negatively impact the nation. First was the birth of Manasseh. Hezekiah's son Manasseh became the most evil king in Judah's history. In fact, if it were not for these 15 extra years, Manasseh would have never been born. We'll see another negative outcome in Isaiah chapter 39. And by the way, it was Manasseh's idolatry that actually uh, caused God to bring the Babylonians over to send the the children of Judah into exile. We'll see the other negative outcome in chapter 39. Verse 7 tells us, And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow of the sundial which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz ten degrees backwards. The shadow on the sundial always moves forward. But here God is going to reverse the direction and move it backwards ten degrees. He's going to turn back the shadow on the sundial 10 degrees or about 40 minutes. He goes on, and so the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Now some commentators, they try to explain this phenomenon as a cloud formation that refracted the sunlight in such a way that it made it look like the sun was backtracking. But that's not what the text tells us, is it? God literally, He somehow turned the shadow of the sundial backwards 10 degrees. It could be that what caused Joshua's long day may also explain what happened here. A near flyby with another planet, perhaps a comet penetrating the earth's atmosphere, it may have caused a 10 degree tilt in the earth's axis. It's interesting that prior to the days of King Hezekiah, prior to 700 B.C., all of the ancient calendars, they marked their years by 360-day years. All of the calendars had 12 months of 30 days, 360 days. But around 700 B.C., this time frame, calendars started adjusting for an asymmetrical rotation caused by a tilted axis. Is it possible... That God's attack on the Assyrians and the loss of this 40 minutes on the sundial correspond in some way. That both events were aided by some unique astronomical event that God uh, created in the sky that produced both these phenomena. Notice verse 9. This is the writing of Hezekiah king of Judah when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. In response to God's mercy, King Hezekiah picks up a pen and he writes a psalm to God. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. King Hezekiah had been disturbed by the prospects of dying in the prime of his life. You know, we also have that that same reaction when a young man dies, don't we? We say, oh, how sad that was that that young man was cut off in midstream. But how do we know? How do we really know that he died at the midpoint in his life? No one really knows the number of our days. How do you know that he didn't live a full life? That for him, a full life was 30 years. Whereas for you or me or someone else, a full life may be 70 years. And understand, a full life is never measured by quantity as much as by quality. It's been said, a life is appraised not by its duration, but by its donation. Psalm 48, verse 14 is helpful here. It says, for this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our God even to death. None of us knows how many days we have, what constitutes a full life. That's determined by God alone. Hezekiah comments in verse 12. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me like a crane or a swallow, so I chattered. I mourn like a dove, my eyes fail from looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed, undertake for me. Again, Hezekiah, he pleads for God's mercy. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all of my years in the bitterness of my soul. God has answered his prayer and in light of it, says that he was going to walk carefully. He's going to be grateful. He's not going to act foolishly. The problem, though, is that not, that's not how his life plays out. He does act foolishly. Rather than walk humbly, he becomes haughty. In fact, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 25 states, Hezekiah did not repay according to the favors shown him, For his heart was lifted up, therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Rather than be grateful for God's mercy upon him, he became prideful. And this brought on God's anger. In verse 16, he continues to pray. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. And that is beautiful. Notice when God forgives a person, he casts all of that person's sins behind his back. That's where he no longer sees them. It's just as if you'd never sinned. That's That's what justified me. For Sheol cannot thank you, Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you. As I do this day, the Father shall make known your truth to the children. If Hezekiah were dead, he would be unable to praise God in the land of the living. And so he delights in the fact that he will continue to be able to praise the Lord and to teach his children God's truth. In verse twenty, Hezekiah says that because the Lord was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs with string instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. And the Lord prescribed a remedy for His cure. Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. It must have been some kind of combination of medicine and miracle. The poultice had something to do with it. God's will and power had something to do with it. But they applied the poultice to the boil and he was healed. And Hezekiah said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Isaiah 39. At that time, merodach Baladin, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, after the defeat at the hands of Emmanuel, the Assyrian empire began to wane. Babylon became the rising power that would overthrow Assyria. And here the Babylonian king is forming allies. He sends a get well card to his fellow king, Hezekiah of Judah. Now remember Hezekiah, he had received an intimidating letter from Assyria. And he had refused to buckle under to fear. But now he gets trapped, not by an intimidating letter, but by a flattering letter from Babylon. And the letter was delivered by a delegation. Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Hezekiah, you're being so naive. These were spies in disguise. When the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem a hundred years later, their invaders, they know exactly where the treasure is to be found, courtesy of Hezekiah. He'd shown it all to them in advance. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and he said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And you can read about that invasion in Second Kings chapter 24. Again, the Babylonian army, they knew exactly where to find the temple treasures thanks to the naivety and the pride of King Hezekiah. Verse 7, And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is 150 years earlier. But here he predicts that some of Hezekiah's descendants will be taken back to Babylon and made eunuchs in the court of the king of Babylon. And we know four by name. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Or their Babylonian names were Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord, which you have spoken, is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Oh, my. And how selfish can we get? Hezekiah's response is, oh, well, that may affect future generations, but at least there will be peace in my day. Future generations will reap the results of my foolishness, but it won't affect me. Sounds like an attitude we hear a lot today when it comes to our national debt. We're hawking our children's future, but at least we're okay. We don't have to bear the burden. It's a selfish attitude. And there we have Isaiah Chapters 36 through 39.